Welcome back to El Nino Speaks, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Dmitry Orlov, a Russian-American engineer who specializes in the study of economic and political collapse scenarios in countries like the United States. How is everything going, Dmitry? Very well. Thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting me to your podcast, Jose. All right. Most of my audience is probably not aware of your work. So could you give them a brief rundown of your bio and the subjects you've covered throughout your career? Oh, well, pretty much I'm, I'm uh, specializing in the collapse of the United States. I realized that uh, the U.S. was going to go the way of the USSR back in 1997 or so, uh, started collecting evidence. And then about a decade later, in around 2006, I started publishing on the subject, wrote several books, uh, gave lots of talks on the subject. And initially, people thought I was a comedian. And uh, they were laughing when I said that the United States is going to collapse. And uh, eventually, it was sort of uh, laughter tinged with horror, and eventually just outright horror. So now they don't invite me to too many conferences to give keynotes because the subject is just too dire for uh, good digestion. No, that, that absolutely makes sense. Because if you just look at the way a lot of elites like in the US, and I'd argue the collective West in general, there's a common view that like the US is exceptional and that chaos and unrest can't happen in such a great polity. But you, on the other hand, take a much more contrarian view. And why do you think the U.S.'s future looks bleak? Oh, well, basically, uh, it's a pirate empire, uh, just like uh, uh, before it, Venice and, and then the Dutch Empire and uh, then the British Empire. They were pirate empires. They, they basically thrived on looting the rest of the world. And uh, the United States has had a pretty good run as as a pirate empire, it started with uh, you know privateers that were licensed by the uh, the Washington government, and it it went on like that for for its entire existence. But now it's it's slim pickings, and and uh, you know the empire has nothing left to loot really, and all the places it could loot now are pretty heavily defended. You know China and Russia are no longer willing to submit. India sort of vacillating. And uh, what pirate empires generally do when they're deprived of the ability to pillage is they turn on each other. They turn on themselves. It's, a, it's really, you know, you can see it as a as an sort of historical Anglo-Saxon trade. You know, what happened in England after uh, the English uh, had to stop looting France? Well, uh, they turned on each other and there was the, the War of the Roses, with an, an absolutely incredible attrition rate uh, among the British aristocracy of the time. The war didn't stop until something like half of them were dead. And I expect something similar will happen in the United States. Yeah, collapses, when you look at them, they don't happen overnight. And I think you said that in like 97, it became clear to you that the U.S. was well on its way towards some type of collapse scenario what factors stood out to you in coming to that conclusion? Oh, well, 
I concentrated on, on, on the physical economy because finance is more or less a fictional realm. It's based on the suspension of disbelief, sort of a theatrical concept of the idea that, you know, money is still worth something and that debts will be repaid. It's becoming abundantly obvious now that, you know, the U.S. is in a runaway mode when it comes to debt and that this debt will never be repaid. So somebody who believes that the U.S. dollar will still be worth something moving forward is living in a in a fictional make-believe universe. But what I did instead was focus on the physical economy, and uh, it turned out that the Soviet Union collapsed because it was completely dependent on revenues from oil and gas exports, which it was using to finance food imports because of absolutely disastrous agricultural policy uh, going back to pretty much the aftermath of World War II and, and then exacerbated by the incredible policy failures of the Khrushchev era, and which were never remedied. So the Soviet Union depended on its enemies, which were the U.S. and Canada, for grain imports, not for bread. It made enough grain for bread, but it didn't have a way of uh, feeding livestock without grain imports. So basically producing enough protein was the challenge. And um, because of that, the U.S. basically was able to corner the Soviet Union uh, because Alaska and the North Sea went on stream. And that gave uh, the U.S. And, and allies the ability to drive oil prices down to below $10 a barrel, at which point the Soviet Union swiftly went bankrupt. It was no longer able to finance its imports, and uh, its days were, were counted. Now, um, something similar is happening with the United States, has been. It's on something of a reprieve, which might uh, last for another two and a half, maybe three years having to do with the the, the fracking uh, business. But right now, all of the fracking is concentrated in just a, a few counties. It's a, it's a little patch that's left that can still be produced at any, anything like a profit. And it's quickly running out. And uh, once it's run out, then you're back to the United States being structured to consume absolutely ridiculous, outlandish amounts of uh, oil just to drive around and to deliver stuff using trucks. Once that oil stops, the country pretty much ceases to exist as a country. Hmm. So when we look at like the prediction of collapses and other like cataclysmic events, they can be quite difficult to paint out. But based on your research, how do you see a collapse unfolding in the U.S., broadly speaking? Well, what, what I see is uh, basically a very weak central government and uh, different parts of the country going their own way, different parts of the population starting skirmishes. There are a lot of people in the, in the U.S. who are basically fed by a U.S. debt. And U.S. debt has to be financed by foreigners in order to exist a lot to a large share. Basically, it's money from foreigners and then... The rest of it is kind of a work of fiction. There's the Federal Reserve, which basically hides lots of financial garbage behind a curtain. And uh, then there are all of these companies that, uh, financial companies that only exist while the Fed provides them with free money. 
as soon as free money uh, dries up, uh, most of the financial companies in the U.S. and uh, a lot of corporations that have been busy taking on debt to buy back their own stock for for years now, they basically they're called zombie companies. Well, that accounts for most U.S. business. So once the free money stops, they're dead. They're done. And uh, after that, you, you have just shortages of products everywhere, starting with uh, diesel and gasoline, and then deliveries everywhere fail, and then the grid fails, and then the country pretty much becomes, uh, you know, kind of a hellhole. Hmm. Now, let me play devil's advocate here, because there are still many pundits who will point to the U.S.'s like alleged geopolitical advantages such as like its enormous nuclear arsenal two vast oceans in the pacific and the atlantic that function as like de facto moats as for like reasons why the u.s will remain at least like a regional power how would you counter those assertions well the u.s is no longer a nuclear power that might come to us as a surprise to you but look at its nuclear deterrent the only thing, part of it that's really functional are the missiles that are submarine launched. Uh, the submarine fleet is is aging, and the U.S. is no longer able to make new nuclear subs at, at anything like the rate that the Russians or the Chinese can. And the missiles that they can launch from subs, uh, the Russians and the Chinese have learned to shoot down with a very good probability of success. So that cannot really penetrate anyone's defenses anymore. There are also ways of launching cruise missiles with uh, nuclear payloads. Those are all subsonic uh, Tomahawk missiles. Uh, those can be, the Russians can shoot those down all day. They proved that in Syria. Uh, then you have actual bombs that the U.S. can drop from, say, B-52s. Now, that's really ridiculous because... Uh, you know, when, when the Americans launch a B-52, they know that immediately in Moscow because the things are huge and very obvious on radar. There's no chance that a B-52 could penetrate Russian airspace at all uh, without being shot down. Then there are the Minuteman missiles, which have not been successfully tested in about a generation. Uh, they've uh, even tried to do things like uh, take the engines from Minuteman missiles, because Americans have a, a lot of trouble making their own rocket engines. They've been using Russian ones for a long time. But when they tried to do that, they had a, a really nasty explosion. So it's they've lost that technology as well. And then there's the question of, uh, what about the plutonium that they use to make these bombs? It's kind of old. And the problem with plutonium is that it, it kind of goes rotten over time. It has to be kept fresh, and uh, I don't think the Americans have the ability to freshen up their plutonium anymore. So what happens then it is the plutonium becomes doped with isotopes that uh, don't lead to a nuclear explosion. They lead to a nasty uh, radioactive fire. Uh, so um, the Americans maybe still have very lim limited ability to spread radioactive waste over the landscape. But when it comes to, to a giant kaboom, I don't think they have much of anything. On the other hand, the Russians now have an entire array of, of weapons against which Americans have no countermeasures at all. 
And the fact is, you know, the Russians won't attack first. That's that's their stated policy. And, um, you know, there's no reason to fear a Russian attack. But if the U.S. misbehaves and, say, pretends to be a great power, whereas it, whereas it no longer is, it may get punished. And uh, I think people in Washington, uh, some of them, uh, the more professional ones, probably not the politicians, but some people in the Pentagon, they're aware of these facts. And uh, I think that, you know, there's a lot of uh, kind of uh, bluster and putting a brave face on it because, uh, you know, the conceding that the U.S. is no longer a nuclear power is politically uh, disastrous for anyone. But uh, the facts are stubborn things. You can't just get rid of them using rhetoric. And um, rhetoric aside, the U.S. is no longer a great power at all. That is some pretty crazy stuff. Now, you wrote a book called The Five Stages of Collapse. And generally speaking, what do these stages consist of? Well, I tried to make sense of, of collapses using a sort of staged approach, a waterfall model, if you will, where one stage of collapse drives the next, just to show what the underlying mechanisms can be in a particular collapse where a financial collapse happens due to a loss of confidence once people realize that uh, there is no uh, business as usual anymore. And that causes uh, credit to dry up. And that causes a commercial collapse because commerce doesn't move without access to credit lines. Uh, letters of credit being honored across the world somewhere by a correspondent bank, that sort of thing. So then commercial collapse leads to a collapse of uh, the tax base, and that leads to political collapse because governments can no longer finance themselves. Government services uh, disappear, and then it's down to social institutions, charities, etc., to provide for whatever people need to survive. And then when these fail due to lack of resources, then you're down to what people can do to each other on a personal level. And the, the last uh, stage is cultural collapse, where basically people become useless to each other and can no longer help each other at all. And then you're basically not even dealing with humans because humans devolve to almost a point where they start to resemble wild animals. And uh, all ethics is gone, all all goodwill is gone, and basically people live on the model that they, they try to survive today, even if it means that somebody else has to die day by day. So that's basically what I charted out, and uh, I, I made test cases and examples of each stage from historical examples. So there are case studies that fill out the picture. So does your collapse model also apply to Europe as well? Because there is a lot of talk that, especially in light of the current economic war that the collective West is waging against Russia over the Russo-Ukrainian conflict, that Europe could be like the first to go in terms of this collapse? Or do you think it's like it'll happen like simultaneously that like both like the US and Europe will collapse? Well, the real problem with Europe is that its elites have been compromised by the U.S. No country in Western Europe has any amount of sovereignty at all. 
basically, uh, the way it works is Western politicians cannot get into any sort of position without having the CIA have some kind of goods on them. They had some dalliance with somebody or they stole some funds somewhere or something. So unless the Americans have some way of, of wrecking their careers, they're not even allowed to go get anywhere near a political office. So basically, they're all stooges. They're all patsies, if you will. And they do what they're told by Washington, by various powers in Washington. Uh, what they do is pretty much scripted. So now no European politician has to say, uh, has the ability to say, Ukraine is not interesting to us. And it's, most of it is Russian territory anyway, peopled by Russians who speak Russian, who want to be Russian, who uh, are lining up in droves to receive Russian passports. So this is none of our business, and we're not going to sacrifice anything for that. And we don't want these uh, Ukrainian refugees here either. They can't stand up and do that. None of them can. The person who comes closest is Viktor Urban of uh, Hungary. He's the exceptional case. But everybody else pretty much just kowtows to Washington and and holds the party line. Yeah, Orban is a really interesting case because of how he he definitely uses that multi-vector policy with not just like Russia, but also China, where he tries to play off all like those three major actors, US, China, and Russia to like chart an independent path. And he's been quite successful at it. And he's and for that reason, he is burnt in effigy by the corporate media in the U.S. Now, I think this is actually kind of relevant. It's a pretty good segue because back in 2018, you penned an article titled Barbarians Rampage Through Europe's Cemetery, where you detailed how mass migration has done a number on Europe. What do you think continued migration from like the developing world, specifically like Africa and the Middle East, will do to Europe and the broader West in the long term? I really don't know. I think that there's going to be a, a number of uh, Islam, little Islamic caliphates popping up in various places in Europe. But in general, I don't really see Western Europeans as able to hold their own anymore. You know, there's, there's an entire science to ethnogenesis and the lifetime of nations, of ethnicities. And... Um, they, they only last about 1,200 to 1,500 years. After that, they pretty much burn out. And um, the oldest ethnic groups on which uh, Western Europe is based, you know, the Portuguese, Spanish, French, and Germans, they, uh, they're pretty much past their sell-by date. They're pretty much spent. And uh, what happens when a main ethnic group holding together a, a nation becomes spent is it gets replaced. So the question is, what do Western Europeans get replaced with? And it's a very good question. Usually it's a very messy process of ethnogenesis and some, some, new, some new race or some, some new ethnicity emerges as a result. Or not, in which case uh, a big territory, a big chunk, chunk of land can stay in, in sort of a quiescent state for a long time. So Europe could very well end up as pretty much a cemetery. Do you see that same process 
playing out in Eastern Europe, specifically the, the Poland and the Baltic states, but like at a slower rate? No, the Baltic states are done. They're gone. Uh, they're not even worth talking about at all. Mm. Poland is sort of a special case because it had, it was for much of its history, it wasn't even a country. And uh, looking at Poland, you have to to basically look at uh, a country that isn't really a country. It pretends to be a country. It often, well, one thing about Poland is that if you want to do well in this life as a country, you look at what Poland does and you do the opposite because Poland is always eager to do the wrong thing. So it's a very special case. Each European country, each Eastern European country is its own case. I Uh, see. So it's a long conversation. Yeah. So let's pivot to Russia's military operation in Ukraine, because that's obviously still like the topic of discussion in geopolitics. Based on your study of Russian foreign affairs, what do you believe prompted this security crisis? Oh, well, Russia had no choice but to preempt uh, the Ukrainian assault on Donetsk. Basically, NATO spent eight years arming and training and equipping the Ukrainians to to attack Russia, starting with Donetsk. And uh, the Russian counterattack came uh, maybe a week, maybe 10 days before the Ukrainians were due to strike and uh, succeeded very quickly in putting their battle plan into complete and total disarray. And uh, since then, the Ukrainians have been fighting a defensive battle and losing it every step of the way. Now, you have to understand that, you know, there may be half a million troops on the Ukrainian side and maybe 120,000 troops on, on the Russian side. But the level of professionalism of Russian soldiers is head and shoulders above anything that NATO can ever hope to provide. So the result is a string of defeats. The Russians are basically holding back as much as they can. What they're doing is they're trying to salvage as much of the infrastructure in the in the country in, in the countryside that they're they're regaining, which is basically Russian territory as far as Russia is concerned. It's always been Russian territory. But they're trying to save all the buildings and, and factories and bridges because it's their stuff. It's their assets. So they're not really carpet bombing anything the way Americans, for instance, would do the way yeah, they bombed, for instance. Yeah, the Raqqa, for instance, is just a bunch of rubble now. They did several, you know, Fallujah, same thing. Before that, they did something similar to Basra. They basically just don't care. They go in there and they just bounce rocks until there's nothing alive there at all. But the Russians are very careful. They're being surgical. What they do is they basically carefully use pinpoint strikes using artillery until the Ukrainians just basically retreat. And then they march in and secure another patch of ground. But the Russians are very careful to not suffer any casualties, whereas the casualties on the Ukrainian side are somewhere between hundreds and thousands a day. It's absolutely devastating what they're doing. By now, something like 80% of all the people that they had who started this this quote-unquote war, you know, are no longer able to fight. Mm. 
Now, if I recall correctly, when you were on the Geopolitics and Empire podcast not too long ago, you said something to the effect that the Ukrainian military's long-term like grand strategy was pretty hawkish in nature after the Euromaidan revolution of 2014. So before Russia's military incursion into Ukraine, what were the Ukrainian military's principal goals? Oh, well, basically, it's it's a fascist, racist cult. The stormtroopers of it are followers of some kind of a pagan cult. It's some, some sort of neo-paganism uh, based on Hitler's Mein Kampf and this notion of Ukrainian uh, racial superiority. They believe that they're, they're super people, uh, they're super Slavs, whereas the Russians are just sort of untermenschen. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're mongrels and they must be destroyed. Uh, that Ukraine must be cleansed of all Russians, of all Russians purged of it, considering that before the Euromaidan, something like 95% of all of all websites in the Ukraine were in Russian. The fact that something like probably 80% of uh, Ukrainians speak Russian as their native language, this was completely ridiculous. And the reason it came to be was because of inordinate amounts of, of American money, billions of American money spent on destabilizing the Ukraine politically. Basically, for a long time, people were paid to go out and protest, and they were paid so well that they had no reason to go to work. They could earn in a day by protesting what most people would earn in a, in a month by working at a factory, for instance, or driving a taxi cab. So the entire country was mentally so corrupted by the end of it that uh, when the Americans basically took this ultimate step in 2014 of taking a bunch of Nazis and sticking them in positions of power, nobody was really in a position to revolt very much, except for people in Crimea, which was never part of the Ukraine at all, and it was an autonomous republic. And Donetsk and Lugansk, which were Ukrainian regions, but they basically didn't want to have anything to do with this new Kiev Nazi regime. You know, the rest of the people just went along like sheep. They expected to continue to be paid by Americans to do whatever uh, self-destructive thing that the Americans wanted them to do. Once the smoke clears from this conflict, what will happen to Ukraine? Will it exist as a rump state or will it just be totally wiped off the map altogether? I really don't know. I don't think anybody particularly cares what happens to Western Ukraine. You know, the Poles think that they can claim it for themselves and, you know, they'll probably choke on it because you can't really pick two ethnic groups that are less compatible than Western Ukrainians and Poles. They hate each other. Yep, Bandera. Yeah, yeah. So so the idea that they're going to be allies may sound good to some really crazy Polish politicians right now, but long term, it's going to be a complete disaster. So there's probably going to be this disaster area in in uh, Western Ukraine, just like there is a disaster area in northern Syria, the Gremlin province. So you might end up with a Gremlin province there. But the Russian territories of the Ukraine, 
that were part of the Russian Empire for a really long time, uh, that were never part of uh, this non-existent notional Ukraine, is really a Bolshevik creation. It's a post-revolutionary creation. Didn't exist until then. You know, that those territories will go back to Russia. Now, let's talk about some of like the misconceptions about Russia because I think this is really important and it just also shows like the decline in American discourse. Because conventional wisdom in the West has always maintained this assumption that Russia is a gas station with nuclear weapons, which has led many policymakers in the collective West to assume that launching a sanctions war against it would bring Russia to its knees. Thus far, that has not materialized. What explains Russia's resilience in the face of these sanctions? Oh, the fact that it's really not very dependent on the outside world for anything. I mean, at this point, uh, the hydrocarbon exports, you know, they're important because it allows Russians to pay only 13% tax, 12, 13% flat tax rate, because uh, a lot of the the revenue from hydrocarbon exports just goes straight into the federal budget. And so Russians have uh, free medical care, they have free schools, kindergartens, free education, have excellent roads. Uh, they they have uh, most of them own the place where they live, their apartment, free and clear. A lot of Russians have uh, an apartment in the city and a country house and a car to drive there. So a lot of that prosperity is underpinned by the fact that they don't really have to pay a lot of taxes because foreigners pay their taxes for them by paying for hydrocarbon imports. Now, uh, that, that's a really good scheme because there's no replacement for Russian hydrocarbon exports. As the Europeans are finding out, it's really, it's either you buy Russian oil and gas or you freeze in the dark, one or the other, your choice. So that income stream is relatively secure, but Russia really doesn't have to have much to do with these hostile nations, uh, as it calls them. And it has a list of them, and they're not on the preferred customer list. So they're not really get, going to get any discounts for what they need from Russia in order to survive. And that's that's pretty much where it stands. So the Russian economy is taking a bit of a hit because there's a transformation going on. It did rely on some experts, especially in high-tech areas, where it didn't provide all of the parts that it needed. So now there's a concerted effort. At, 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 there has been a, an ongoing effort at, at import replacement, but now it's on steroids. But while all of these factories are figuring out where to uh, uh, get this or that part uh, made, productivity is taking a hit and uh, revenues are taking a hit. But it's not really a recession. It's basically just a, a temporary revenue hit. But economic activity is 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 really just growing really if you look at statistics like electricity consumption which is steady for residential there's nothing interesting there at all what fluctuates is industrial use of electricity and it's up so revenues are slightly down but electricity use is up so that tells you that there's production going on 
and it's going to grow. And once uh, the war is over, uh, Ukraine is no longer exists, really, and the Russian parts of former Ukraine are once again added to to Russia. And by the way, those parts are were responsible for about eighty to ninety percent of all productivity in all of Ukraine. Once those those provinces are taken away, the rest of the Ukraine is just not interesting at all to anyone. It's just it's not even uh, a successful agrarian state. It's just a kind of a, a silly backwater. But anyway, once that happens, Russia has the resources, the people, the talent, and uh, the political cohesion to go through an incredible growth spurt, after which it'll be one of the largest economies on the planet. Now, I've picked up on some hysterical perspectives on Russia from commentators throughout the collective West and the aftermath of this special military operation in Ukraine. But I've noticed this as well, even prior to this incursion. And, and moreover, before my, uh, the Maidan incident, why do you think Russophobia is so pervasive among Western elites? Oh, because uh, they know that they can't survive unless they figure out a way to steal Russia's resources. Because uh, they can't survive without very, very cheap energy and other resources. In order to get at them, they, it, Russia has to be destroyed. Now, the fact that they can't destroy Russia makes them mad. It drives them insane. It's as simple as that. I see. Do you think this is a long-standing perspective that dates back centuries, or is this a relatively recent phenomenon? Well, I, I think it's an ongoing thing, but it's being exacerbated by the fact that, you know, the temporary new lease on life that the U.S. gained itself by the, the fracking extravaganza is going to run out in about maybe two and a half, three years. Now the, the entire fracking patch is down to just a handful of counties and in New Mexico and, and Texas, and uh, they can't even afford to continue drilling it at the same rate. So that is going to pretty much dry up. And then what? Then nothing. And uh, the the incredible shortages of hydrocarbons that uh, uh, Europe is experiencing right now, not just hydrocarbons, but uh, fertilizer and, and uh, other materials that Russia used to provide, for which there is no replacement. That also drives them mad because basically they have to come face to face with their own impotence and uselessness, and uh, they can't. So in, in light of this like disconnection from the West, who do you believe will be some of Russia's new uh, strategic partners in both like economic and security affairs as this new order on, begins to crystallize? Oh, the new order is already here. So once you uh, cross out the collective West, you can... Look up on the Wikipedia the list of unfriendly countries that was that was ratified by the Russian government. So once you knock those off the list, uh, you look at what remains. So Russia is pretty well allied with all of Africa, with all of Latin America, with China, with India, and with much of the Arab world. And that's two-thirds of the world's population. Now, 
there's a lot of speculation with the breakdown of like the liberal hegemonic order. And there's a lot of factors that have contributed to that. And I think like the COVID-19 and like the government response to it coupled with Russia's military operation were like the final nails in that coffin. But now with the way things are panning out, you're hearing some people speculate that we're entering, a, uh, we're in like a multipolar order. And I've heard some takes as well that perhaps we're in a transitional phase where the multipolarity is fleeting and it's heading towards like a more bipolar order with like the US facing off with like China. Where do you fall on like this spectrum of like where things are heading towards in the next like century or so? Oh, I don't know about the next century, but I'm pretty sure about the next couple of years. Basically, uh, the United States is getting crossed off the list all over the place. Nobody's particularly interested in uh, U.S. debt, and debt has to uh, continuously increase. And if it stops increasing, that then the U.S. is pretty well broke. It, it's pretty much bankrupt. Federal checks will start bouncing all over the place. And... Um, so that's what we're looking at. You know, even Japan is unloading its U.S. debt. It's one of the two largest U.S. debt holders in the world. The other one is China. And now Japan is, and China are in a race to see who can unload U.S. debt faster. People are oblivious to this, but it's happening. You know, the avalanche has started. So as far as bipolar, multipolar, nonpolar, People really want to see some kind of a cohesive big picture, but it, it's really trying to flatten the world into something that is digestible and can be delivered in, in sound bites. But the world is very complex and, and there are diverse interests. Each country has its own set of problems and national interests, and its relations with every other country in the world uh, can be equally complex. So. What Russia tries to do is enter into bilateral relations with as many countries as possible, which makes it possible for Russia to be simultaneously relatively good friends with Israel and with Iran, countries that are enemies. And there are lots of examples like that. So that is probably the way forward, is for countries to to create links with each other on very different levels, business level and cultural exchanges and and uh, security arrangements, various other approaches. Whereas this American idea that there is this rules-based international order that Washingtonians are so fond of speaking about, but if you ask them, show us the rules and explain to us how these rules are ratified, who comes up with them, they pretty much draw a blank. And then go right back to talking about their their vaunted rules-based international order. So they're basically living in a world of fiction. And uh, it's a bit of a, you know, it's a process, I suppose. And, and the first step to realizing that you got nothing is to start talking about, well, the liberal world order, order is not really in, in a good shape. And it's not unipolar anymore. Maybe it's bipolar. Maybe it's manic depressive. I don't know. But I, I think that I don't think this has to do with geopolitics, really. I think that this has to do with some kind of pop psychology 
and words people say in order to comfort themselves. Yeah, interesting stuff indeed. We're definitely in for some tumultuous times, especially like in the West. Now, I think this is a good place to bookmark our conversation, Dimitri, but I'd like to thank you again for taking time from your schedule to chat. Certainly. So where can my listeners find your latest work? Well, the the teasers for all the articles that I publish are available at clubworlof.wordpress.com. That's C-L-U-B-O-R-L-O-V dot wordpress.com. And uh, it leads to a subscription-only website where I publish the full works. And I publish once or twice a week, usually uh, sometimes a short article, sometimes a really long article. And what I try to do is plug in giant gaping holes in Western coverage of what's going on in the world. Uh, I've been on a mission to do that for a long time. Fantastic. Uh, Thank you so much again. And to my audience, your attention is much appreciated. And with that, El Nino has spoken.